invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to our text for this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 4. We are back in Hebrews. Uh, We are working our way, as is our custom, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through a whole book of the Bible. As many of you know, we have been in Hebrews for several months, and we are now taking our time to work through Hebrews chapter 11. And the reason that we will be taking our time is because, uh, as you'll see in verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, and I'm I'm sure you noticed during our reading uh, from the chapter this morning, each of these portraits of faith has a rich Old Testament context. And so, while the inspired author of Hebrews sometimes only uh, briefly mentions each Old Testament believer, uh, in this case, this morning, it's only one verse about Cain and Abel, um, specifically about Abel, uh, we will look in depth at the Old Testament context of each of the names listed in Hebrews chapter 11. So we want to acquaint ourselves with, you might say, the backstory, the background of what the writer to the Hebrews um, is saying. So let us read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, as I'm sure you already noticed this verse, this whole chapter speaks about faith, right? There's that recurring phrase that we pointed out, and it's by faith, as we see in verse 3 and here in verse 4. That phrase is repeated throughout the whole chapter. And so, as we consider what faith is, I want to underline again the fact that as Christians, we need to be specific about what we mean when we talk about faith. And we need to specify what and who specifically is the object of our faith. For us as Christians, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the author to the Hebrews writes in chapter 12, verse 2, that we as Christians are to run with endurance the race that is set before us, doing what? Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We are to look to him. Our faith, loved ones, is very specific. Its object is Christ. We look to him and to him alone, and we are saved. This is why the Westminster Confession of Faith, when it speaks of faith, it uses that very specific key phrase. First to it is saving faith. Um, And we see this specifically in chapter 14, section 2. We read, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting Upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. See, this is the clear teaching of the Bible that our faith is to be in Christ alone. Our faith is specific, it is directed, it is focused. This was important, as we've noted throughout our study of the book of Hebrews, this was important for the Hebrew Christians to understand Because they were tempted to leave Christ. They were tempted to leave their profession of faith in Christ and to return to Judaism. 
to return to the old covenant forms of worship. They were tempted to leave Christ because of the persecution that they endured, uh, because of their immaturity and understanding the depths of Christ and who he was and all that he did for them. And so the writer of Hebrews writes in this chapter and he shows them that the old covenant saints themselves were looking to Jesus. They were looking forward to the new covenant promise that the Lord Jesus has now fulfilled. See, and so if the Hebrews leave their faith in Christ, they're not returning to the faith of the old covenant saints. They're returning to a false faith because the Old Testament saints were looking to Jesus. They all believed the same gospel that we believe, the same gospel that we confess, loved ones. They looked forward to the day that the promise would be fulfilled. We look back to when the promise was fulfilled. And so now in this chapter, we see faith personified in Hebrews 11. We see it personified in several biblical and historical people. And I want us to remember, as uh, we're reading uh, this chapter and considering it, that what we read about these people is not just ancient history about strangers. But, loved ones, what we read in Hebrews chapter 11 is we're reading our family's history. We're reading about our brothers and sisters. And children, uh, this is like those times when your parents and your grandparents tell you about your family's history. And, you know, they, they take out the photo album, they open them up, Sometimes you have to dust them off. And they start pointing out uh, great-grandpa and great-great-grandma, and they're explaining to you um, who uh, these uh, people uh, are and how they are related to you. They're explaining their history to you. And, you know, children, while you don't know those people personally uh, because you've never met them, you're related to them. They're your family. Well, in the same way, Hebrews 11 is about our spiritual family. It's about our brothers and sisters who lived before Christ, but who trusted in him, who trusted in the promise of his coming. And so in this chapter, the first brother in Christ that we read about is our brother Abel. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so what I want us to do is to work through Abel's story in Genesis chapter 4, and then we will look at some points of application, uh, the three points listed there in the sermon outline. So I want us to begin first with Abel's story. It's a story that began after his parents sinned against God and brought the curse of sin upon all creation and upon their children as well. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 4, and keep your Bibles open there as we work our way through this story. Genesis chapter 4, reading verses 1 through 2. Now Adam 
knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. You know, as we read these verses, you notice that we're not told very much about these two brothers. We're not told about their childhood or their uh, teenagers. But we are told about the fact that they were the first children born to Adam and Eve. And one of them uh, grew up to be a rancher and the other one uh, a farmer. And so as we consider these two brothers, you know, on the surface of things, it seems like they're pretty similar, right? They both worked hard in their occupations. Both were diligent from the looks of things to use what God gave them to sustain their family and then to bring offerings to God. John Calvin, the reformer, in his sermon on Genesis chapter 4, he notes that when we compare these two brothers, everything seems equal between them. They both brought offerings from their respective occupations to God. And so then if everything seems equal, according to the text, why did God accept Abel's offering and reject Cain's offering? Why did God reject one and accept the other? This is what we read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 5. In the course of time... Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so why was Abel's offering accepted and Cain's offering rejected? Some argue that Cain's offering was rejected because it was not a blood sacrifice. We know that in the ceremonial laws, which will later be instituted by God under Moses, blood sacrifices or animal sacrifices were central to how God's people were to approach him. And so some reason that because Cain did not bring a blood sacrifice, it was rejected. But you know, this explanation doesn't fully account for this situation because we know that in those ceremonial laws, the fruit of the ground was also acceptable to God. In fact, Leviticus chapter 2 explains in detail how grain offerings were to be offered to God in worship and that the poorest people in Israel could have their sins atoned for by grain offerings, specifically laid out in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. So, considering this, the problem doesn't seem to be that Abel brought a bloody offering and Cain merely brought an offering from the ground. Others argue that what made Abel's offering acceptable to God was the quality of it. We read in Genesis chapter 4 that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. But when Cain's offering is described, it's simply described as an offering of the fruit of the ground. There's no indication that he brought his best. Some 
read too much into this text and conclude that it seems that Abel brought the best of what he had and Cain didn't. And so they conclude that Cain probably kept the best of the harvest for himself and offered to God the leftovers. And that's why God ultimately rejected his offering. Now, loved ones, I believe, along with many other Reformed theologians, that the best explanation is to consider the heart condition of each of these brothers. I invite you to notice in the text, specifically in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 4, notice in the text that each person is mentioned before each of their offerings. Genesis chapter 4, verse 4, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Notice that the person is named first. Each person is emphasized or highlighted more than the offerings that each of them brought. See, what we see here, loved ones, is that God begins with the person. And then and only then does God consider the person's works, the person's worship. John Calvin says, it's as if God is telling us that he does not waste time with appearances, but he looks on the heart. He looks on the person. This is exactly, isn't it, what we read about in God's choosing of David in the Old Testament. That man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. And this This is made very clear for us in our passage in Hebrews chapter 11, a verse that places the emphasis on faith, on faith, as the reason for the difference between the two offerings of these brothers. We read again, verse 11, that it was by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. See, so from outward appearances, the two looked the same, their worship was similar, but it was their intentions, it was their motivations that were entirely different. One had true faith. One had saving faith, a heart and a mind that trusted God, that sought to please God. That was Abel. But Cain... Cain was entirely different. Though he offered worship to God outwardly, he was rejected because he did not come in true faith. In fact, we gain further insight into these two brothers from the New Testament. More is revealed to us in the New Testament about these two brothers. Let's consider what the New Testament says about Abel. Let's consider Abel first, even though he was born second. When Jesus spoke to the hypocritical Jewish religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23, the religious leaders we know who worship God with their lips, but whose hearts were far from him, Jesus, when he spoke to the religious leaders, he referred to Abel as righteous giving us insight into Abel's faith, into Abel's heart. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 23, verses 33 through 36, where Jesus 
explains Abel's heart status, his status before God. Matthew 23, verses 33 through 36. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered, murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Loved ones, did you, did you catch what Jesus said? In his words, he likened the Jewish religious leaders, those who only worship God outwardly, he likened them to Cain. And then the Lord Jesus himself said that Abel was righteous, that he was right with God by faith. That's what we learn about Abel. What is it then that we learn about Cain from Scripture? Well, we see first uh, Cain's heart when God rejected his offering. That's the first thing we notice in our text from Genesis 4 before we look at the New Testament. We see Cain's response when God rejected his offering. Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 through 9. If you want to turn back there in your copy of Scripture. We read, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and he killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Beloved ones, Cain proved by his reaction that he did not love God and he did not trust God's promise that and we see in the text, God preached to him, God warned him, Cain's heart was set. He murdered his brother, he lied to God about it, and he showed no remorse or repentance. Cain, we see, only regretted the consequences of his sin, not the sin itself, not the offense that it posed against a holy God. And then the New Testament gives us even greater insight into Cain's heart and mind. Because unlike his righteous brother Abel, we read in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. See, loved ones, on the surface of things, the two brothers seemed the same. But only one had saving faith. Only one had true faith. Abel was righteous. And because of that, the worship that he brought to God was acceptable to God. It was accepted by God. So let's now 
having that as background, consider some points of application as we consider, again, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. I want us to notice first that God rejects worship that does not flow out of saving faith. And God rejects worship that does not flow out of saving faith. We see this specifically with Cain. Because the attitude that we see with Cain is the attitude that is repeated throughout Scripture. That with him, there was formality. There was only an outward appearance of worship. But inwardly, there was no true faith in his heart. Prophet Amos, he was a prophet sent by God to warn Israel when the nation was straying from God. It was a time in Israel when the nation was maintaining all of its ritual formalities, the sacrifices, the offerings, the festivals, all these things were still going on, but their hearts as a, as a people were far from God. Idolatry was commonplace, as was violence and injustice. And so God spoke to Israel through Amos, and he said these words, Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals I will not look upon them. See, it was, for Israel at that time, empty ritual. There's no faith. And God said, I hate it. I take no delight in it. Now, this was important for the first century Hebrew Christians to understand because, think about it, some were considering rejecting Christ and returning to the old covenant forms of worship. Loved ones, what would that have been? It would have been all ritual with no true faith, no true faith in the right object of faith, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. It would have meant rejecting the one who makes our worship pleasing to God. Because loved ones, the Bible teaches that in and of ourselves, we are sinners. And all that we have to offer to God in and of ourselves is tainted by sin. It's a stench to a holy God. But we read in the Bible that when we come through Christ, when we come in true faith, our worship is mediated through the Son. Through the Son, through Christ, God accepts our worship. He even delights in our worship. And apart from such faith, it is impossible to please God, as we'll see next week specifically in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. You know, considering our context today, uh, in our Reformed tradition, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on Reformed worship. Uh, We have order to it. It has to be by the book. It has to all be regulated by Scripture. And loved ones, all of that is critically important. That's why we take it very seriously, because God takes that very seriously. But there is a danger. There's a danger that we can confuse formalism with true faith, with true worship. Or we can just go through the motions and we could lose sight of why we're even here this morning. Why we're even here every Lord's Day. Friends, God, we see in Scripture, 
rejects worship that does not flow out of saving faith. That's, we might say, stating it negatively. So then, let's state it positively. The second point, God accepts worship that flows out of saving faith. That God accepts worship that flows out of saving faith. And we see this with Abel. Let's look again at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Notice this, God commending him by accepting his gifts. See, the faith that God has granted us, the faith that he granted Abel, makes us pleasing to him. He delights in our worship because he delights in us. There's a joy and there's a positivity to it. We read about this in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Loved ones, that's what God does for you and for me. He rejoices over us as we rejoice in him in our worship. Psalm chapter Uh, Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. God takes pleasure in us, loved ones. You know, we need to remember this as we worship. God is here. He is delighting in our worship because we are coming to him through his son, through our mediator, You know, we so often lose sight of this wonderful, glorious spiritual reality. We sit here and we can sometimes get distracted by the externals, right? Kids rustling, maybe the hymn is a little too hard to sing. Uh, I'm tired, it's too cold, it's too hot. Loved ones, God is here. He is in our midst. And knowing this should cause us to worship more joyfully, more robustly, to pray more earnestly, more faithfully, to listen more carefully, to attend more consistently to the worship of God in the house of God. God accepts our worship. And lastly, thirdly, God accepts us because of the saving faith he has granted. He not only accepts our worship, but he accepts you and he accepts me through his Son, Abel is for us a reminder that though we live in a sinful world in which we are persecuted by the wicked and by the unrighteous, we belong to the same family as Abel. He is our brother in Christ. And he remains, loved ones, an example for us. He is showing us that even the bloody violence that we experience on earth will not nullify the hope that we have of eternal life in Christ, that our life is hidden with Christ in God, just as Abel's life was hidden with Christ in God. This was important for the first century Hebrew Christians to remember, to consider. They were being persecuted, you know, not yet to the shedding of blood, but it was painful. And we know from church history that they would soon face bloody persecution from the Roman Empire. 
And this is the comfort that the Hebrew Christians were to find and that you and I are to find this morning. See, that though Abel died at the hands of the wicked, though he died, he still speaks to every generation of Christians who read Scripture. Martin Luther said, now that Abel is dead, he teaches the whole world. He is more alive than ever. So great a thing is faith, is faith. It is eternal, unceasing, abundant life in Christ. Now, friends, think about that moment. Think about that moment in history when Abel died. That the very next second, he was with Christ in glory. That Abel was the first man on earth who died and the first man who went to heaven. What an event that must have been. For the first time, a sinner entered into the courts of glory, cleansed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, of Christ to whom Abel looked. Abel was accepted because of the saving faith that he was granted. And the good news is that you and I will also be accepted. We will join him in glory with the rest of the saints, with the rest of our Christian brothers and sisters. And on this point, John Calvin compares us. He compares Christians in the New Covenant with Abel. And Calvin asks a really great question. He asks, what amount of revelation did Abel have? How much of the gospel was Abel working with? Abel had a small, obscure promise. He had that promise from Genesis 3.15 that a descendant of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and Abel clung to that small, obscure promise promise. He clung to it by faith. He believed God's promise. Loved ones, what do we have? Not a small, obscure promise. Loved ones, we have and we live in the light of the noonday sun of Revelation. We have not just Genesis chapters 1 through 3 of the scriptures. We have all 66 books of Revelation that explains to us in detail the Lord Jesus and the salvation that he accomplished, the salvation that is even now being applied to us. See, we not only see the promise dimly, but we see and know the fulfillment clearly. Calvin says, we therefore have to surpass Abel in the depth and the the conviction of our faith. And may God grant us grace to do so. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the merit and mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the assurance that you grant us by your word. That when we approach you through faith in your Son, that our prayers are heard, our worship is received, and our hope of eternal life is secure. Grant us, we pray, to understand the blessing that we have of true worship. Lord, do we confess that when we approach you, we so often do so half-heartedly. 
exhausted by work and by the demands of our many responsibilities, we are distracted by life and by our circumstances. Forgive us, we pray, and, and refresh us so that we might know again the joy of what it means to be able to approach your throne of grace in worship and adoration, to offer a sacrifice of praise. And we thank you for the assurance that we have of eternal life, that though we die, we shall live, and we will be raised with all the saints to enjoy eternal fellowship with the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.